0: Russia, the mighty bear of the East, a nation wielding influence and power ever so prevalent in our day-to-day lives. But where in this postmodern masculine ideal is the role of women? In line with our current season and exhibition of photographs by Margaret Watkins, we take a closer look at the ways in which women relate to and understand Russia. In this episode we talk to three remarkable women, owner of the website Russian Art & Culture Natasha Butterwick. Russian cinema expert, Dr. Rachel Morley, and the BAFTA award-winning film and television director, Margie Kinmuth. Welcome to the Pushkin House podcast. The November 2017 publication of the Russian Art and Culture Guide marks three anniversaries of varying importance. The centenary of the Russian Revolution, the fifth anniversary of Russian Art and Culture, and one year since the beginning of Natasha Butterwick's tenure as a Russian Art and Culture owner. We speak to Natasha on the day of the launch of the Russian Art and Culture Guide, asking her to tell us a little more about that one year of her time at the forefront of the web platform. Um,
1: well, it was a very um, fascinating year for me personally, because I... um was unexpected for me that I'll become in charge of a very interesting, exciting, and important project like Russian Art and Culture, because I was always a supporter uh, since the inception of um, that wonderful website. Um, so it was overwhelming to start with, because I had to learn quite a lot in a very short period of time. To be able to continue what has been done by the founder Theodora Clark, uh, and uh, to be able to produce uh, some new ways into the refresh uh, uh, the site uh, with more information, uh, introducing more contributors, making it um, wider and more interesting, contemporary. Uh, so it was very interesting for me but also hard work, but it's um, worth it. And um, I'm very glad that I have this opportunity to develop myself as well in um, this
2: field.
0: Natasha, how do you relate to Russian culture and its aspects today, just in your day-to-day life? What are your most favoured uh, aspects of Russian art and culture?
1: I always uh, loved art. Since I was a child, I, um, when I had spare time, I was drawing. Uh, I loved drawing. And when I became older, and easier, uh, obviously it uh, became more difficult. So the visits to the galleries, uh, I was brought up in Moscow, which was very uh, easy to access, and to the great art, uh, were very frequent. Uh, Later on I uh, became an art dealer, so I was uh, actually selling uh, Russian art uh, for many years, over 20 years now, Uh, so I was closely related to art, also I had um, the privilege to be educated in music, so I was playing piano when I was a child, Uh, and I was exposed to classical music uh, throughout my life, so also I love ballet, Opera. Um, uh, this is my main, uh, main love in uh, culture. That's what draws me uh, all the time. When I have a chance, I always, uh, I always go to the performances, to the concerts, and whenever uh, the new exhibition opens, I'm always there because I'm curious. I want to see
0: it first. Have you noticed um, anything uh, interesting, or has anything made an impression on you about the uh, non-Russian audience when they look at Russian art and culture?
1: Uh, I came across uh, many, many times, being uh, living in England, um, that people, when they hear that I am from Russia, they almost everyone knows. Uh, Some great Russian uh, names, composers, artists, historians, uh, um, some important figures, politicians. And they get so excited and they want to go deeper. Um, People who already have some knowledge of Russian history, uh, a little bit of Russian culture, uh, they will go into detail and um, probably it will be more of music about music uh, because it's widely spread it's uh, not political and it's more available uh, for wider uh, population.
0: Could you give us a sort of perhaps glimpse into what you envision for the future from now on for Russian art and culture
1: I would like to spread uh, our wings and we say, so I would like to get more and more international audience to be involved in Russian uh, culture. So I would like to have uh, more subscribers, more viewers uh, by uh, introducing new technologies. So we'd like to do some podcasts, we'd like to introduce more videos uh, with a YouTube channel, introducing um, interviews. Uh, with various interesting uh, people in uh, Russian uh, culture, connected to Russian uh, culture. So I'd like to spread um, the news uh, around the world. So this is uh, my aim for the moment.
3: So my interest in Russia really started um, when I was in my mid-twenties. I completed a degree in French Language and Literature at Oxford University and wasn't entirely sure after leaving Oxford what I wanted to go on to do next, whether it involved future study or work so I was teaching French in London at various colleges and decided that on top of doing that I wanted to learn another language and Russian was one that had always interested me not least because of the challenge it presents to um, English native speakers with a different different alphabet and um, being a different family from French German and so on so in those days the school of Slavonic and East European studies offered a, um, a first-year uh, course part of their degree programme that focused entirely on learning the language from scratch. That said, I got hooked um, both by the language itself and the culture that came with it and also um, on the institution itself. CEAS is, is a very vibrant place to study and I quickly found that I enjoyed having the guidance of the tutors there. So I Persevered, I did. I completed a second BA in Russian uh, language and literature, as it was called in those days. And from then I went on to do an MA and a PhD at CIS. And so what started as a one-year visiting student placement ended up being, I don't know, the best part of 20 years studying and learning about Russia. And my interest in Russian cinema started Really, as part of my undergraduate studies in my final final year of my degree, um, Professor Julian Graffy, who retired from CU in twenty thirteen, at that point ran one undergraduate course which covered the whole history of Russian film from its beginnings in the pre revolutionary period up until the present day. And it was on that course that I discovered pre revolutionary film, and I was just blown away by the intensity of the films and also their beauty. and particularly their interest in the female protagonists that they put really at the heart of their films. So doing my MA at SEAS enabled me to um, deepen that interest. I wrote my MA dissertation on the way in which gender and gender relations were represented in films by Yevgeny um, Bauer, who is still considered the leading pre-revolutionary Russian director. And from that, I went on to write my PhD again on the theme of um, women in in early Russian film and in particular on the way in which the tropes of performance and performing are used to discuss questions relevant to women at that point in history. One of the things that I noticed um, as soon as I started looking more widely at the extant corpus of films from the pre-revolutionary period was that nearly all of them were characterized by fact that they had a real deep and um, developed interest in representing the fates and also the characters and personalities of the female protagonists that featured in the films and this interest in in female protagonists is not something that um, necessarily continues throughout the whole history of Soviet and Russian films so you know it does make this period um, special in that regard. As early as 1910, 1912, you still find female protagonists being victimized by the very patriarchal male characters they encounter but the sympathy is already on the side of the of the female and that's something the directors seem to be going out of their way to create so a very striking film from 1913 uh, made by bauer is called twilight of a woman's soul and in that film we have really a sort of casebook example of what it might mean to be a woman in Russia in 1913. It's perhaps no accident that that's the year in which Alexandra Kalantai, who would go on to become famous as a Russian communist revolutionary, um, she wrote a text in that year called The New Woman. And a lot of what she writes about The New Woman applies to the protagonist in Bauer's film. So specifically, this idea that in order to be a strong woman and in order to flourish, you have to put love, in other words, intimate relationships with men and emotional relationships with men, in second place. And you have to not let that rule your life, and you have to go out and do things for yourself. So this character, the character at the heart of Bauer's film, is particularly interesting because she overcomes prejudice and maltreatment from two different men, a workman called Maxime who rapes her, Um, in, in the early part of the film and then her husband, her eventual husband a prince, who rejects her when he finds out about the rape she's no longer the pure woman he thought she was so she gets her own back on the rapist by killing him she picks up his own, one of his tools he's a workman, stabs him and then when she confesses to her husband about her past he rejects her and she doesn't collapse and crumple and cry she holds her head up high tells him he's pitiful and um, not worth her respect and leaves and at that point she creates her own life she becomes an opera singer and she creates a career for herself performing on stage now in true Bower fashion the male protagonist regrets having been so harsh and he's, he's, the, the prince starts to try to look for, for Viola. and the coincidence at the end of the film is that he attends the opera in which she's performing She's performing in La Traviata and the scene that we see her perform is the final sequence when the, stu- the heroine in that, in that opera is about to die from consumption and is forgiving the lover who abandoned her for his maltreatment of her. So Dolsky, encouraged perhaps by seeing Viera perform this very this traditional quintessential 19th century role of the weak woman dying from tuberculosis and forgiving her penitent lover um he goes backstage and tries to tries to ask the to return to him confess his undying love now at this point we might expect her to throw herself into his arms and for the film to end with a kiss but she doesn't do this she instead tells him that she he is not the sort of man she wants to be with. She has her own career, she's independent, and she knows that Dolsky, the prince, is not going to change. And this is really extraordinary. It sort of recalls the scene in um, Eugene Anjigin, Pushkin's famous paema, in which Tatiana rejects Anjigin, who had rejected her before. But the difference is that in that 19th century text, Tatiana's reason for rejecting um, is that she is married, so she wants to remain faithful to her husband. Bauer's heroine, Vera, has no husband, so in rejecting Dolsky, she is purely sticking to her guns about living life for herself, putting love in second place and being a strong, independent woman. As I researched for my MA dissertation, in fact, on the way in which gender was represented, in, in these pre-revolutionary films. One thing that I was immediately struck by was the fact that nearly all of the female protagonists are cast as performers. So they t- they are given the role of a, of a performer within the script. Um, so in the film that I spoke about, Twilight Portrait, Vera becomes an opera singer. And again, this is not just films by Evgeny Bauer, it's a trend that you can observe throughout the period. So women are nearly always cast as... Um, performers. So we have dancers, and up until about 1913, they tend to be amateur dancers. So they dance at festivals or they dance for entertainment. But from 1913, they take on professional uh, performance roles. So we have opera singers, we have a lot of ballerinas, we have actresses, we have even um, more modern performance of, performances of dance, such as the tango woman, or the role that was known as a tangistka in Russian in this period, and Gypsy dancers as well, so the popular dancers who would be hired to perform at soirees in Russia um, in the cities in the early 20th century. And this led me to wonder why they were being given these roles and what the function of them was. There's also the fact, of course, that when women perform, they're performing for an audience. And so this raises questions about the nature of the way in which the performances are being presented to the viewer and whether the women who perform are being positioned as an object of um, a male, the male gaze, for example. So this idea that the gaze of the camera adopts a male perspective. And so, in other way, in other words, this, this status as performer becomes um, another form of entrapment, another form of keeping women in their place as objects to be looked at and to be admired, um, but but not to be given any sense of autonomy. One thing then that I sort of developed on from that is to look at the way in which the very act of performance is is used to raise questions about those sorts of roles that women can hold in society, but also about their self-creation. And another very interesting feature is the fact that these female protagonists, these women, tend to be the the site or the location of experimentation in these films. So film was a very new art form in the pre-revolutionary period, and the new filmmakers were trying very hard to create their own specifically cinematic language that would Differentiates differentiate cinema from existing art forms. And one of the main ways in which um, film was found to be different or to have the potential to be different from these art forms was through making the camera mobile and through using all the resources of different ways of filming characters. And what's very interesting to me, and this is something that I talk about at length, um, throughout the book, is how those moments of experimentation, so for example the moment when the camera suddenly starts to move, having been fixed um, previously, how the the camera movement is nearly always focused on on the female protagonists. So if we jump forward a hundred years and think a little bit about the way in which film in Russia 100 years later, so in, in the start of the 2010s, um, is dealing with um, you know these similar sorts of issues. So by comparison with pre-revolutionary film, there are actually very few films from this period that focus on the female protagonist. Some of the, the female directors working on film um, have talked in interviews about how difficult it is to actually be given work and to be allowed to make films. I'm thinking in particular of Angelina Nikanova, who is an, um, a director who's made now about three or four films, and a very striking film from 2011 called Twilight Portrait. There are a lot of links between this film and the film that I spoke about earlier, Bowers' um Twilight of the Woman's Soul. I mean, even the word Twilight in the title is the same. And in this film, uh, Nikolaevna does have an interest in exploring the female protagonist, Um, but it's less really about the female protagonist's own sense of self, and more about society's view of itself, and society's... um, the way that society seems to have lost the ability to be empathetic and to be sympathetic. So what we see in this film is a focus more on feminine, or I put that in inverted commas, so tri- qualities that are seen as traditionally feminine, like empathy and nurturing and care of, of children and so on. I I perhaps should stress that these films made before the revolution were all made by male filmmakers. There were no female directors working before the revolution. Women do contribute in their roles and in writing scripts for some of these early films, but they were all made by men Um, and there doesn't seem to be, in my opinion, that same interest in the fates and psychologies of female protagonists on the part of male directors working in Russia currently.
0: That was our conversation with dr rachel morley from the school of slavonic and east european studies author of the book performing femininity woman as performer in early russian film released by ip taurus in january 2017. with several films focused on russian art the most recent of which was the astounding revolution new art for a new world we now turn to bafta award-winning film and television director Margie Kimmon, to speak about and compare her experiences of visiting and working in Russia, about Russian women, and shed light on her newest project. First of all, thank you
2: very much for having me. (laughs) And um, the first time I went to Russia was in the 80s. As a tourist, I went on a trip in the early 80s. And one of the things that immediately impressed me was the fact there were no adverts in the metro, there were no images of naked women selling products, that was a real surprise. It was just straight away, I felt, um, it, was, it was quite a relief in many ways. I mean, it wasn't just a manifestation of, of n- no capitalism, it was also the fact that images of women were not being used in an exploited way sell things, um, so first of all that was interesting, and then on that trip, it was very, very cold, it was February, and it was minus 20 degrees, and we walked around outside, up, and I noticed there were a lot of um, people sweeping up the snow, and they were all women, and that was also a massive surprise, because I've never in my life seen women
3: Street sweepers or
2: for that matter women sweeping the snow or working in that kind of manual capacity. So I took some pictures and they didn't want to be photographed but I did take a couple of pictures because it was kind of extraordinary and that was the beginning of my journey to Russia really And, and then has become a sort of love affair with the art and culture of Russia and then in the last few years, have made quite a number of films about about Russia. So that's where it all began, and that was my first impression of the women. When I decided to make a film about the Russian Revolution, I was um, you know looking for a starting point really, and um, the most important event that would kind of kick off to get get the audience into this story about what the artist did in the revolution. And so I decided to start the film off. On um, International Women's Day, which was the day on which the revolution began in March uh, nineteen seventeen, that's when the first demonstration took place. And um, one of the reasons I was really excited about what was happening for women was because they just got the vote in Russia. The revolution emancipated women and it gave them a new freedom they hadn't had. And so they were not only were they allowed to vote but they were also free to do all sorts of things. And there were a lot of the artists were women who were taking part in this very exciting avant-garde movement, which had already got going, you know, it had been sort of going for about 10 years already. And there were artists like um, Popover, who's absolutely wonderful avant-garde artist, very famous, amazing um, abstract painter, and sculptor. And so her work was very, very important. And I put her paintings right at the top of the film. And she'd also wrote a lot about, you know, her views about what, what the art meant and how it sort of intertwined with the politics. So I was just excited by the number of female artists who, who came out of that point. And that's why I decided to open my film with the sequence of the. Women painting the banners, um, you know, bread and vote, and all the famous words that appeared on the banners. So that was the the women artists have then, since then, have slightly um, disappeared, you know, there's, there's less of them. So it was something that specifically happened a 100 years ago. In every film I make, I, I'm very, very keen on gender equality and equal pay for women. Then, now, any time, and hopefully in the future. So that's something I feel really strongly about. And as, a sort of a you know female writer, director, producer, I always try and make sure that you know, everything's equal and that we're you know absolutely make you know making that point whenever I. Go to Petersburg, and I made a film in the Hermitage, in the actual Winter Palace itself. I made a whole film about the, the history of Russia as it took place in the Winter Palace, that then became the State Hermitage Museum. So it went on this, you know, great political story arc, and I was invited to make this film. So I said, well. How, how am I going to even begin to make a film about, you know, a thing like this, you know, and I went, I said, I'd like to meet everybody possible behind the scenes and kind of spend some time and just go behind, behind the doors where the public don't go and really meet everyone and decide how I'm going to tell the story. And then what was amazing was that just about every curator was female and I thought, well, this is Absolutely amazing. There were not just female curators, but there were female directors as well. I mean, the director of the trechikov is called Zelfira Trigulova. She's a case in point of a somebody who started as a curator, going in at quite a low level, um, probably not very well paid initially, and then has risen to the position of one of the most powerful museum directors in Russia. And quite a few of them are women, so I'm discovering that more and more. Um, And it's a strange reason that this happened was because initially the job wasn't very well paid and those women were going in and doing something they loved and they felt passionate about which was kind of being custodians of of the Russian history, objects, treasures, art, music and so on. And now they're all in charge. So that was very exciting, because you wouldn't get that in the UK. It's an absolutely different career structure. Mm-hmm. So my experiences are very much to do with film by film, and I'm about to make another film It's very, very exciting. I've been given access to the, the State Russian Theatre Museum in St. Petersburg. Um, they've got a big anniversary coming up next year, and they've invited me to go behind the scenes again and film everything in... Not just everything in their archives, but they have all these satellite museums, which are like apartments where famous singers and composers and so on lived around St. Petersburg. These places have been kept, and you can climb up the creaky stairs and go and see the very rooms, you know, like, you can see where Dostoevsky worked, you can see Ritsky, Korsakov's desk, you can see places where they, they lived, and then a lot of you know, when the history changed and the revolution happened, these little apartments um, were suddenly turned into communal apartments with maybe 30 families living there, and um, now they've reverted to museums again. So that, that's my, my next film, it's very much about the magic of the theatre and all the creative people that, that, that made, you know, Russian theatre what it is, and it's kind of Anyways, it's about escapism, a lot of the characters did escape and emigrate, they left Russia for various reasons, and went to become global names, um, many of them still there and you know, less, less well known. So that's the, the film I'm doing next. Anyway, there's lots more female curators in that, <laughs> in that story, <laughs> and including the female director of the Theatre Museum, um, Natalia Mitelica, who I'm working with.
0: Thank you very much for speaking to to us, and it's just a pleasure talking to you because you're such an insightful, insightful um, speaker. And you know, I'm always very, very happy to speak with you.
2: Well, that's lovely. I just wish there were there was more gender equality and more female directors on the planet. And, you know, in Hollywood, there's like a desperate three percent of women, and um, it's just a very imbalance and um strongly about that so anything I can do on that subject I'm <laughs> happy
0: to explore. That was Margie Kinman giving us an exclusive insight into her next Russia-related film project. I'm Boromir Totev and you've been listening to the Pushkin House podcast.